0: Hello, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the 2014 summer series of the Daily Evolver Live Calls. It's good to have you with me. It's good to be with you. Tonight is Tuesday, June 24th, and uh, although I've posted some writings and dialogues over the last several weeks and seen many of you in my travels... I haven't done these calls in a while, and it really feels good to be back in the saddle here. Uh, I've certainly had my fun. Uh, I had a wonderful visit to Hungary for the Integral European Conference in Budapest. Uh, We hosted an Integral Living Room gathering here in Boulder. I did that with Diane Hamilton and Terry Patton, my colleagues, at the Integral Center earlier this month. And in the last couple weeks, I've just been uh, relaxing a bit and doing some spring cleaning, getting my garden going, and it's uh, just, what is this, the third longest day of the year here in the Northern Hemisphere, so it's a beautiful summer night here in Boulder, and I'm coming to you as usual from my home in Boulder, and I'm here with my tech guru, Brett Walker, and again, it's really good to be back, because God knows the world didn't go on hiatus, (laughs) and there's plenty to talk about. Tonight, we're going to focus, of course, on the situation in Iraq, which is happening right before our eyes, of course, and we're going to see if an integral worldview helps us see and relate to it uh, any more intelligently and lovingly, and to see how we might actually be helpful in this situation. So I'll get to that in a few minutes, but before I do, I want to take a poll, as I sometimes do in this call. And find out what you think President Obama and America ought to do in this situation, because that is the question that is in the air right now. So I'm going to ask you to punch either one, two, or three into your phone according to how you feel about what America should do. So hit one if you think Obama is handling it about right just the way it is with, what is it, 300 advisors and working on um, changing the government and so forth. We'll talk about that in a minute. So number one, if you think we're doing things just about right. Number two, if you think Obama needs to do more. And number three, if you think Obama needs to do less and just sort of let it be. So again, one, if you think it's about right. Two, if you think we need to do more, and three, if you think we need to do less. And in a few minutes, we'll look at the results, also the results of a Gallup poll of the American people on those same questions, and, you know, try to straighten things out a little bit. Uh, Also, before we get to the substance of the call, I want to give a shout-out to Integral Life, which is the main web portal for cutting-edge integral thinking worldwide. They host this podcast, for which I'm very grateful. And my additional work can be found on my personal blog, DailyEvolver.com. Also, for those of you who'd like a little help in following along uh, with some of the integral language and concepts I might use, you can go to the link at the bottom of your reminder email. And you'll see a link that will take you to a couple charts that are just actually helpful to glance at if you need to. One is the altitudes of development chart, and the other is a quadrant chart. And these are key parts of integral theory. The altitudes of development being the uh, trajectory of human development from you know, the awakening of humanity through postmodern and integral thinking. And the quadrant chart being representation of all of reality, if you will. So it includes what what the quadrants tell us is that human beings are not just evolving in terms of bodies and social structures, but also in terms of consciousness and culture, in terms of our own individual consciousness and the um, collective consciousness of the culture of civilization as a whole. So those might be helpful. You can also find those on my blog under the theory section at thedailyevolver.com. All right, so I think that gets us um, set up. Oh, one more thing, and that is, at the end of the call, we will be taking comments and questions, as always, and at that point, you can do so by hitting one. You can raise your hand, if you will. If we have time, we'll take as many calls as we can. All right. So let's look at item number one here tonight. Last Thursday on my blog, dailyevolver.com, I posted an entry entitled Fish Can Feel. And on it, I linked to research published that very morning by Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, that reported on studies conducted on fish by Professor Cullen Brown. And what Professor Brown found was that, quote, fish have very good memories. They live in complex social communities where they keep track of individuals and can learn from one another. This helps to develop stable cultural traditions among fish. And for the most part, the primary senses of fish are just as good and in many cases better than that of humans. And there is mounting evidence that they can feel pain in a matter similar to humans. And this is, I think, as I I pointed out in the blog, another example of continued moral development, where people continue to increase the circle of beings that are worthy of moral consideration. And this is happening very quickly in the postmodern world, And also in the integral world, of course, integral includes the best of postmodernity and the best of all previous stages of development. And I know for myself, I've already feel badly about the land animals I eat, and I pay increasing attention to their quality of life. But I have been able to sort of kept a willful distance of denial, if you will, with fish because, you know, they don't have expressions, they're underwater, they're foreign, you know, whatever. I've I've been told that they don't feel much. Uh, But this is beginning to break that resistance. And I don't know exactly how I feel about it in terms of enjoying my tuna sandwiches of the future. But it does give me pause and make me, um, you know, challenge my own ignorance about the sentience and consciousness of non-human beings. And I had an, uh, a, an experience that really drove this home. It's, it's interesting how these things arise. So I, I, I read this study. I've already been thinking about this sort of thing. And I have a fish pond in my own garden, a small pond where I have had koi, and they've been very happy living here for many years, And fish in Colorado hibernate in the winter when it gets cold, and they stop eating, and they hide, my fish hide under this ledge in my pond in this hibernating state. But by mid-May, the waters warm up, the fish come out, and they're hungry again, they swim around, they court, they mate, they play in this little waterfall, they jump and splash. And this usually happens by mid-May, but this year, no fish. And... It turns out that in Colorado, we had this extra large migration of blue herons through Colorado this early spring, and many people with fish lost them to these herons. These herons are actually quite good at, in these early morning hours, they stand in these ponds and they're really good at, uh, you know, when these fish stick their heads out, wham, they get taken. So I'm assuming that's what happened to my fish because there's no fish, except that A couple weeks ago, probably, you know, 7th, 8th of June, well after they should have come out, I did catch a glimpse of the head of this one fish who was looking out under the ledge. And I assumed he was traumatized by the loss of his four comrades because I didn't see them. And I, you know, I looked and poked around a bit. And so there's this one fish. I, I caught a glimpse of him once, twice, three times. And But he's not eating, he's not swimming, he's not doing anything but just hiding. And fish can do that for a long time because they eat algae and they can live in these little crevices. But, you know, I wanted to see fish. I have this fish pond, for heaven's sake. So this last Sunday, uh, we jumped in the car and went out to the fish store and got another five koi. And I brought them home, little three-inch ones, about half the size of the one that was still in there. And I brought them home. I I went through the routine of putting the bag in the water to equilibrate the temperature. I went through the process of adding water a couple uh, at a time, over an hour or so. And uh, the whole time I'm doing this, my surviving fish is nowhere to be seen. Again, he's so timid at this point, completely hiding from any movement. And finally, it's time to ease the new fish out of their plastic bag into the pond, those five new koi, which I do, and immediately they get together and begin swimming around the pond in a little school. So I'm watching this, and all of a sudden I see the head of my older fish pop out from under the ledge. And he's looking at this new school of fish for a moment. And then, I mean, within 10, 15 seconds, he darts out right into the middle of this little school of fish. It's so deliberate. I wonder if it's an attack. You know, is he territorial? I don't, I don't know. But it isn't. They just swim around. They touch each other. They nuzzle each other. It's this amazing greeting where within a minute, they're all swimming around in his new school with my old fish in the center of things. And it was just remarkable. I mean, just especially having two days earlier posted this research on, you know, the, the interiors of fish. And it turns out that I don't think he was timid at all. He was lonely. And within an hour, all of these fish were darting around, splashing around in the waterfall. And as of two days later, they are all living happily ever after. So I am very, very moved and touched, really, by my fish being lonely. And and I wish I had realized that sooner. I would have got him a friend. And all of this brings me to the next story. We're going to do a couple stories here before we get to the main story in Iraq, which is a, 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 a bit of an observation or series of observations on a new movie that's out starring Angelina Jolie called Maleficent. And Maleficent uh, is a combination of the words malevolent and magnificent. And the movie, again, stars Angelina Jolie. It's And it's a, it's a postmodern and maybe somewhat integral retelling of the fairy tale Sleeping Beauty. And let, let me explain what I'm talking about. Angelina plays the wicked fairy godmother. You know the, the story of Sleeping Beauty. The wicked fairy godmother puts a curse on the king and queen's newborn baby girl. And the, the curse says that when the girl turns 16, she will be pricked by a... Uh, the needle of a spinning machine, and she will go into a sleep for a hundred years and be awakened by the kiss of a young prince. Now, why does she put this curse in this girl? Well, in the original telling of the fairy tale, it's because the king snubbed the fairy godmother at the baby's christening, and she was furious, so she did it in revenge, simple as that. But in this latest remake of the story, Malevolent, it's a bit more complicated. It turns out that when the king was a youth, when he was a young prince himself, he fell in love with Maleficent, the fairy godmother, who was at that point just a young, beautiful fairy herself living in this beautiful pastoral world in the next valley away from the kingdom. And this... World, And this is one of the great things about the movie is that it's just exquisite. It's a beautiful paradise, this pastoral paradise with waterfalls and trees. It's very green and verdant, full of beautiful flowers and all kinds of wonderful life. There's gnomes and fairies and sprites, and they're all frolicking around with, you know, the little bears and squirrels and birds and butterflies And it's this beautiful world. And, you know, the prince wanders into it. He meets uh, Maleficent, and they fall in love. And, you know, as these things sometimes go, when we're looking for drama, particularly, he ended up betraying her through a series of circumstances, very dramatic, and I won't get into all of it. He finds himself faced with this dilemma, where in order to become king himself, he must kill Maleficent, the fairy he's in love with, and bring back to the older king proof of him killing her. But he, he goes to do that because he really wants to be king. He wants to be king more than he loves Maleficent, obviously. But when he gets to her, he can't quite bring himself to kill her, but he does drug her and cut off her wings, which he takes back to the king as proof of him killing her, and he does indeed become king. So she wakes up from her drug um, you know, stupor and realizes what's happened. She's without her wings. It's a horrible scene. And she becomes the more malevolent side, you might say, of Maleficent. And uh, she goes on a tirade. And she finds herself invited to the king's, the christening of the king and his new queen's baby, And in a fit of pique, she puts the curse on the girl. So, you know, without getting into too much of the story, because it's a little different than the original, she basically, as the girl grows up to 16 before the curse actually kicks in, uh, the the girl is actually sent to the pastoral paradise to be taken care of uh, while she grows to be 16 so that nobody can get her. The king sends her away. And it turns out that Maleficent, Angelina Jolie, becomes attached to the girl and actually helps the girl. And when she goes into her um, stupor, she is the one who indeed kisses her and brings her back to life and all of that sort of thing. So there's a big fight. And at the end of it, uh, Maleficent, and this is what's interesting about this, from an, I think from an integral perspective, is that Maleficent pulls the two kingdoms together. And at the end, we end up with a situation where it's very much like the beginning. Uh, Everybody's happy, the war is over, the princess has woken up, everybody's friends again, uh, and we are back in that stage of primordial bliss. Now, what's interesting about that is that in this Postmodern slash maybe integral retelling of the story, the wicked godmother is not just, you know, a cardboard character. She's not just wicked. She doesn't just play the role of wickedness, which is what happens in traditional fairy tales. Traditional fairy tales are about helping to civilize kids into what's right and wrong, and good and bad, and black and white, and that sort of thing. But these days, It's about realizing that we have good and evil within one person. It's very much like shadow work. It is indeed shadow work, where part of our job as fully functioning human beings is to realize that we have good and we have evil within us. And so this is malevolent herself. And so at the end of the story, and this is actually the last line of the movie, and I thought it was just so telling... The last line of the movie is, and so the kingdom was brought together, not by a hero or a villain, but somebody who is both hero and villain. And that's this, you know, fairy godmother, Angelina Jolie. And of course, she's sitting there in the middle of all of this bliss. And somehow we all know that if things go awry again, she'll be able to kick butt and save the day. And this is an, it's a, really an interesting sort of phenomena that we see in the culture in general, and that is this retelling of these fairy tales uh, in more complex ways. Uh, we see it in the, the, the you know, super popular Broadway play and movie also, wicked which is the story of the Wicked Witch of the West, told from her perspective. Then the Wizard of Oz, you know, the you know, horrible wicked, wicked Witch of the West. Uh, it turns out that she meant well, actually. <laughs> it's just that she was misunderstood. She was mistreated. She had this green skin. She was kind of wild. And, you know, all of this, which was made worse by the fact that her best friend was Glenda, this vivacious, beautiful, blonde, cheerleader, sorority girl, And, you know, they struggled over the man, and the Witch of the West became wicked, but again, she didn't mean to. Uh, And I got to tell you, uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but a lot of these women get into trouble because they're being jilted by men. That's just part of these stories. But it's not always that way. Um, In the movie Oz, James Franco plays the Wizard of Oz, uh, showing the backstory where it shows the Wizard of Oz as a young man and shows that again he wasn't such a bad guy he became a, a you know a colossal fraud uh just basically one step at a time <laughs> and uh you know with all good intentions and of course the 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 big example of this right now is the Disney movie Frozen big hit movie for little girls again uh, which is a story of a princess who again has these expectations of being a perfect good girl, but just can't do it. And all of this is is exemplified in the the song that we've all heard a million times, Let It Go, this ubiquitous song by Idina Menzel. And I'll just do a, a little bit of a lyric from there. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know, let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Let it go, let it go. That perfect girl is gone. And it's just remarkable to see this evolution of what we teach our children. Uh, when I was a kid, the, the original Disney fairy tales were online. I mean, there wasn't wasn't the grim stuff. I mean, we could read that and so forth. But it was basically sanitized, very much right and wrong, good and bad, good uh, evil, and we knew that we wanted to be good. And the, the the role model of Sleeping Beauty for young girls of my generation was to be demure and wait, and be nice, and be sweet, and be happy, and smile. And eventually, some prince will come along and liberate you, or you know, wake you up. Uh, and now, all of that was, is within the girl herself. And that's just, I think, interesting. And when we look at the evolution of culture and consciousness, what is it when kids know that, And get that download at an early age. You know, that we have the shadow side, that we contain both good and evil, that we don't have to be perfect, that these expectations are unreasonable, and that we can let it go. Um, The rules don't apply anymore. In fact, that's one of the lines in the let it go. And, And another example I would use is... Another post that I posted this week of a video that has been just a phenomena in the YouTube and and, uh, Internet world. A video of the song Chandelier by the singer Sia. And uh, they were on Ellen. Sia was on Ellen when when this hit six million views, this video. And uh, when I posted, it was 32 million. Now it's over 40 million hits. So it's really a phenomena. And the video of the song, and it's a great song, but the video is just beyond. Uh, It it features this young 11-year-old girl, this girl dancer named Maddie Ziegler, who in the video plays a childhood version of Sia, who's dancing alone in this living room to the song. And... I have literally never seen anything like this dancing. It's wild. It's kooky. It's intelligent. It's, in the words of Zachary Feder, and I love this description, gloriously demented, technically breathtaking. It shows a lot of introspection. It shows a lot of interior and exterior. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I did get, uh, interestingly enough, and it surprised me, But I I actually think it's legitimate. I got some criticism, and the video raised some critique of, you know, this 11-year-old girl is being sexualized in this video. She's, again, 11 years old. She's in a flesh-colored leotard. She's not doing anything uh, overtly sexual, but she is dancing her brains out. I mean, she is just doing the most, it's, it's like I said in my um, blog post, uh, I see more of the human condition transmitted by this 11-year-old girl in four minutes than in some novels I've read and movies I've seen. And it's wonderful to see this, again, you know, good, bad, kooky, introspective, wild, quiet, uh it's it's as a meditator, it's almost like watching this an unmediated arising of this human of the human condition being expressed by this little girl. And to see artistry of this kind by a child is um, I can see why it's gotten forty million hits. And I just would encourage you to look at it because, you know, I do, myself, I think, you know, there she is, 11 years old. She's in a leotard. You know, is this too sexual? And, you know, as as Brett said, who I work with here, he said, you know, a lot of it depends on the the intention. And the intention of this is not to sexualize this girl. I mean, you can see other, you know, some of these pageants and things like that where maybe that's happening more. But this is an expression of the wildness and the beauty of humanity expressed in the form of this little dancing child. So that's where I come down on uh, this uh, controversy. But I encourage you to check it out because it's a worthwhile controversy, and it's certainly a worthwhile uh, piece of art. All right, so... Again, any comments or questions, uh, you can hold them to the end. We can talk about any of the stuff we've talked about. But let's turn our attention now to Iraq. Our poll results are, let me compare them to what the American people said in the Gallup poll. American people say 41% of Americans think President Obama's response to the violence in Iraq has been about right. 41% of Americans, 58% of the people on this call. So a little more than that, think, okay, you're doing okay, Obama. 29% of Americans think he should be doing more, and this includes a majority of Republicans. And that's number two, only 17% of this call think we should do more. And 22% of the American people think we should be doing less, 25% of this uh, you folks think we ought to be doing less. So again, 58% just right, 17% do more, 25% do less. But boy, what a problem, huh? <sighs> yeah. Well, let's just take a look at some aspects of it. I, I, you know, I, I think most of us know the general, you know what's actually happening, the big forces at work here. We have really three groups in Iraq uh, who are tribally identified and yet living in this construct of Iraq that um, is, uh, at at least at this stage of the game, working. We have the Kurds in the Northeast who are actually pretty modern and doing okay. Uh, And then we have the Sunnis in the Northwest who are being overrun by radical Sunnis. And um, we have the South, which is the Shiites, which is Baghdad, that's a majority of the population of Iraq. And they are worried sick about being overrun by these jihadis, uh, which are this ISIS, this group uh, that has taken over there. And The question is, why did this happen, first of all, and what can we do about it? And the why this happened depends, at least in America, on whether you're on the right-hand side of the spectrum or the left-hand side of the spectrum. The right thinks that the reason this is happening is because Obama withdrew our residual forces, because The Iraqis wanted him to under the leadership of Maliki, who was a democratically elected leader. But clearly Maliki is not your Nelson Mandela, shall we say. He is not a man with the moral gravitas to come in and bring warring, conflicting, uh, hurt, victimized people together. Because, of course, in Iraq... The history of Saddam Hussein was that the Sunnis um, overran the Shiites and persecuted them under his rule, and now it's the other way around. And this is, um, you know, from an integral perspective, very interesting. Um, This tribal consciousness is not really about sharing power. Tribal consciousness, and we can see this on the stages of development, Uh, The tribal consciousness is what we would call the warrior consciousness, the red consciousness, and also somewhat into amber or traditional consciousness. This is blue meme if you're using spiral dynamics, red and blue meme. In in, uh, integral altitudes, it's red and amber memes. Uh, And at this stage of the game, in tribal warfare, and this is most of human history, if my tribe wins, your tribe loses. And so, you know, nobody wants to be on the losing side of the street. And literally, the mentality of this stage of human development, the actual psyche of people at this stage of development, cannot see the benefit of including the perspective of the other, of the enemy. It would be like, okay, we know what God wants us to do. Now let's consider what the devil wants us to do, you know. For a traditionalist, that isn't going to fly. The only thing that really works is my tribe wins. And these rivalries between particularly the Sunnis and the Shiites have been going on for since 700 AD. And they have been, as often has been the case in the Middle East, they've been held uh, in control by a dictator. And this is true throughout the Middle East. Uh, if you look two years ago, uh, so much from Libya, um, even e- Egypt, uh, Iraq, were under the, well, not Iraq, because Iraq was um, under the, uh, the lid of the U.S. But these dictators would keep these populations under control. But when the lid is lifted, these tribal rivalries uh, and ancient hatreds come out. In Iraq, when Saddam Hussein was deposed, the United States basically took over that position of keeping order. But the rivalries continued. And the question is, would they have continued otherwise? Under Saddam Hussein, uh, Shiites and Sunnis were intermarrying. They were sharing neighborhoods. Uh, they were, uh, you know, integrating. When that lid was lifted and the Sunnis were disbanded and the whole government and the military and all of the you know, apparatus of the Saddam Hussein government was dismantled under the U.S. rule, uh, then there was the chaos between the Sunnis and the Shiites again. That went on through 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, with terrible results. And in 2007, uh, we did the surge. We put, another, I don't know how many people, was a total of 200,000 troops, close to 200,000 troops in Iraq, and um, you know, brought things back to order again with the what we call the Sunni awakening. And this is where the moderate Sunnis, you know, most of the Sunnis, even in the Northwest, don't really like the, this, these, um, this ISIS, this, you know, jihadis, these basically very much red meme. They're, they're the the, the, the uh, bulk of the Sunni population is in traditional and even modern stages of development. But this ISIS is in the Red Warrior and beginning traditional stages of development. And there's a big difference. Uh, there was a video that was uh, put out by the ISIS, the, the jihadis, that was got a lot of attention this week, also on YouTube, where they, in English, put out a plea to young men throughout the world to come and fight this uh, fight, uh, this, the fight for Allah. And there was Australian and British fighters, perhaps an American, people aren't sure. Uh, one of them was a star medical student from England who had a 17-year-old brother there. But it got, you know, millions of hits. And here's some of what they said. There was a, four of them sitting with their, their turbans and their jihadi clothing and their uh, guns and they said, Oh, my brothers living in the West, I know how you feel. In your heart, you feel depressed. The cure for this depression is jihad. Now, this is them talking to their fellow Westerners in England, Australia, US. You feel that you have no honor, oh, brothers. Come to jihad and feel the honor we are feeling, feel the happiness that we are feeling. As you sit in your comfort, ask yourself if this is how you want to die, or do you wish to be resurrected with the wounds and the sacrifices that you've made for Allah? Ask yourself as you sit and watch this video if this is what you have chosen while you know your brothers are out on the front lines facing the bullets and bombs and everything the enemy has, while you are sitting in comfort, while you're sleeping, while you're shopping, They're sleeping on the floor. They're giving blood. And this is, you know, a powerful message. And this is, you know, a a really terrific insight in the mentality of the Red Warrior stage of development. And we see that thousands, this is actually one of the problems, thousands of people, uh, young men, have been flooding from all corners of the world into these war zones because they want to fight. And this is a marker of the particularly the red stage of development. All of first tier wants to fight in a certain way, but red meme, warrior stage of development, they want literally to go to war. There's a wonderful book by Chris Hedges, an American journalist, very postmodern. He wrote a book called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. And this is from one of the reading group guides. Uh, Hedges, Chris Hedges, argues that war is a deadly addiction, a drug that offers an unmatchable intoxication. The thrill of being released from the moral strictures of everyday life. And I would add the complexities of everyday life. It's very, very simple uh, psychically to be at war. There's good and bad, and you're fighting, uh, as he goes on. It's also a unifying force, Hedges writes, that provides a sense of meaning, purpose, and self-sacrifice that can wash away life's trivial concerns. I remember something that George W. Bush said to the troops back in 2008 as he was launching the surge, and he was talking to the troops and he, this is President of the United States, he says, I must say I'm a little envious of you. If I were slightly younger and not employed here, I think it would be a fantastic experience to be on the front lines of helping this young democracy succeed. It must be exciting for you. It's in some ways romantic. In some ways, you know, confronting danger. You're really making history, and we thank you, Bush said. And this is that sort of call in our breast to war. And this is something that is very much online with the jihadis uh, in general, uh, but was also very much online in the late 1800s and early 1900s in, in preceding the two great world wars. Uh, this kind of romantic militarism was very much online there, too. Uh, uh, there's some quotes that Stephen Pinker has in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. He quotes Nietzsche as saying that it is mere illusion and petty sentiment to expect much or anything at all from mankind if it forgets how to make war. Hilary Barak said, how I long for the great war. It will sweep Europe like a broom. Igor Stravinsky said, war is necessary for human progress. And the British historian J.A. Crumb said, peace would mean a world sunk in bovine contentment. And I'm actually kind of pro-bovine contentment myself. But, you know, for some people, it feels like we need to do more. <laughs> in fact, there's a book uh, out that just is released by a current historian from Stanford named Ian Morris called War, What Is It Good For? And um, in The Week magazine, this latest issue, they write about it, and they said, Stanford Stanford historian Ian Morris argues that war has made humanity richer and safer, supporting that statement by showing how large conflicts have, often enough, helped create well-policed nation-states that encourage trade and reduce the incidence of tribal battles. And that's, you know, I think a really interesting point. And it's a point that I make on the Daily Evolver regularly is that um, sometimes, and I'm not saying this is is sort of an absolute fact, but just looking historically, what, for instance, in Europe, what brought forth basically postmodernism, this idea of uh, that war is never the answer that um, you know war is an abomination, that uh, we need to turn our attention to rescuing people who have been victims of war or victims of various kinds of oppression, children, women, um, slaves, uh, b- cultures that have been colonized. This is all uh, a result, or at least has been wildly accelerated by the horrors of World War II. If anybody thought at the beginning of the 19th century that war was a force that would actually create a better culture, they were deeply disabused of that idea by the mid-20th century or 1900s. So that's what it takes. And so the question... In Iraq, and this is the question I ask in the poll, and it's the question that, you know, the West, and particularly Obama and the United States, is pondering. And that is, how can we be optimally helpful? Uh, You know, maybe we shouldn't have gone there in the first place. That's certainly what the left says. What the right says here is that we should never have uh, left you know the residual force agreement. Uh, we should have stayed and kept twenty thousand people, one tenth of our troops there. I actually think that if we kept twenty thousand troops there, this probably wouldn't be happening. But that's uh, you know a a, a a big cost to the United States. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that when they left, that this wouldn't still be happening. But I do think that some evolution would probably be happening. Um, even if there was sort of a big daddy, like a, a, Saddam Hussein, there's no way to argue for him, but he did at least serve that purpose. Or the United States, or some sort of a military force that's greater than the forces that are fighting. Uh, you know, maybe holding them at bay, there would be a natural force of evolution that would make this move from you know traditionalism to modernism be a little more peaceful but we don't know that and at any rate that's the past and we're looking at the future and knowing what we know now what do we do and i actually love what obama said And you know i'm a big obama supporter and i'm one of the you know whatever it is percent 20 plus percent not many of americans who thinks he's doing a good job with foreign policy i really do and I'll read a quote that he said recently about this situation in Iraq. And he said, We're not going to allow ourselves to be dragged back into a situation in which, while we're there, we're keep keeping a lid on things. And after enormous sacrifices by us, as soon as we're not there, Suddenly, people end up acting in ways that are not conducive to the long term stability and prosperity of the country. You have a schism in Iraq between Sunni and Shia it's throughout the region, and it's profound. Some of it is directed or abetted by states who who are in contest for power there and that's for sure Iran's Shiite and there you know Maliki is um You know, Maliki spent 20 years of exile in Iran. So tribally, he's uh, very much thinking in terms of the the tribal Shia victory. And of course, the Saudi Arabians and the Emirates and the Gulf states are Sunni. And so they're using Iraq as a proxy war. Uh, So some of it is abetted by states who are in contest for power. And then he says, Obama says, you also have failed states that are just dysfunctional and various warlords and thugs and criminals that are trying to gain leverage or a foothold so that they can control resources, populations, and territories. And you have failed states, conflict, refugees, displacement. All that stuff has an impact on our long-term security. But how we approach these problems... And the resources that we direct towards these problems is not going to be exactly the same as how we think about a transnational network of operatives who want to blow up the World Trade Center. So, you know, what he's saying is this isn't not the same thing as this group of people who were largely Saudi who conspired to, you know, blow up the World Trade Center. He goes on to say, we have to be able to distinguish between these problems analytically so that we're not using a pliers where we need a hammer or we're not using a battalion where what we should be doing is partnering with the local government to train their police force more effectively and improve their intelligence capabilities. And that is what we're doing, for sure. Uh, And we'll see how it goes. What I would also say is that when it comes to the warrior stage of development and this early traditional stage of development, what the only thing that works aside from, you know, holding them in some suspended animation, slowing down, you know, keeping them from each other's throats for long periods of time. The only thing that works and and historically, the only thing that has worked is that they need to be defeated. They have to be defeated. And I love a a passage from Steven Pinker, who's one of my favorite developmental psychologists out of MIT. And he wrote, any organism that has evolved to be violent is a member of a species whose other members, on average, have evolved to be just as violent. If you attack one of your own kind, your adversary may be as strong and aggressive as you are and armed with the same weapons and defenses. The likelihood that in attacking a member of your own species you will get hurt is a powerful selection pressure that disfavors indiscriminate uh, lashing out. It also rules out most folk theories of violence, and, and you hear these all the time, and he goes on to describe them, these folk theories of violence, such as a thirst for blood, a death wish, a killer instinct, and other destructive itches, urges, and impulses. And this is a lot of what has been said about these jihadis, is that they just have a death wish. Um, But when a tendency towards violence evolves, Pinker says, it's always strategic. And I love that. I think that's a really, really important point. Organisms are selected to deploy violence only in circumstances where the expected benefit outweighs the expected cost. This discernment is especially true of of intelligent species. And I think that's really a good insight into the jihadis. Yes, they want to go to paradise. Yes, they want their 70 virgins. Yes, they're willing to die for Allah. But were they doing this? Were they having sectarian insurgencies under Saddam Hussein? You know, that would have been a sure trip to martyrdom, if they had done it under him. I mean, he was known for gassing tens of thousands of people at a time. Uh, No, they didn't. They cooled their heels while he was in power because they didn't see that there was any strategic advantage. There was, it was no win. It was just instant martyrdom. And you see that martyrdom isn't really what they're after, but, you know, power is. Every first-tier meme wants to create the world according to their worldview. So these are people who you know find modernity to be quite lacking. There's a enchantment to the world when you think that you are a child of Allah or God and you are here on earth to fight a battle for him and to create a caliphate, a, a perfect world where Everybody lives according to the laws of God. There's, you know, you, you, this this mentality is the same in very, very conservative people here in the West, conservative Christians who, you know, they don't necessarily say it out loud, but they would love to live in a world that was arranged according to b- biblical principles. Uh, they'll say that much, but, um, you know, in terms of... Um, uh, you know, actual laws. Uh, I think they probably uh, withdraw a bit. So anyway, that's what we're dealing with here. And it's been a amazing couple weeks, and it will be a very, very interesting time to come. And uh, so I guess I'll stop there. I've gone on for, gosh, quite a while here and open things up for anybody who has any comments or questions, really about anything we've talked about and uh, anything you'd like to talk about. So if so, press 1 on your handset or on your phone, and we will be happy to hear from you. In the meantime, I want to read something from one of my favorite war correspondents, Sebastian Younger, he's written a number of books on uh, the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. And he talks about this mentality of, you know, warriors, of soldiers, and how it's not necessarily the cause that they're fighting for, but they're fighting for this amazing we space, this amazing connection that they have with each other. And I'll just read a little bit from him. This is Sebastian Younger. He says, War is hell, as the saying goes, but it isn't only hell. It's a lot of other things, too. Most of them delivered in forms that are way more pure and intense than what is available back home. The undeniable hellishness of war forces men to bond in ways that aren't necessary or even possible in civilian society. The closest thing to it might be the parent-child bond, but that is not reciprocal. Children are generally not prepared to die for their parents, whereas the men in a platoon of combat, infantry, for the most part are prepared to do that for each other. For a lot of men, the security of being enclosed by a group like that apparently outweighs the terrors of being in combat. He says, The classic story of a man throwing himself on a hand grenade Certain death, but an action that will almost certainly save everyone else, is neither a Hollywood cliché or, or, nor something that only happens in wars gone by. It is something that happens with regularity in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't think it could be explained by army training or any kind of suicidal impulse. I think that kind of courage goes to the heart of what it means to be human and to affiliate with others in a kind of transcendent way. Of course, once you've experienced a bond like that, the soldier bond, everything else, else looks pathetic and uninteresting in comparison. That may be one reason combat vets have such a hard time returning to society. So, I thought that was another, you know, good description of this interior space that draws these men together in this warrior bond. So I see we have some folks who are online uh to make some comments. So I will start with oh David Loy. David, welcome.
1: <laughs> welcome. <laughs> yeah. Uh three quick comments um uh, because there are many people who want to will say something. Uh, as a World War II veteran married to a Holocaust survivor Leon Eisler I could go on for a long time uh, and and in a sense get nowhere because it just goes on and on and on the other the second point i want to make is i'm extremely impressed with the sophisticated level of your analysis and your knowledge you know you're you're either on a par or better than the bulk of the commentators that are out there these days. It's very impressive.
2: Thank you, David.
1: On the on the Iraq thing, to me, I'm I'm with you on feeling that Obama is doing the right thing. That uh, what what I I think what he he is moving toward what the most sensible thing to me is that you got these three tribal units that. Want to fight it out and so on, and the only role that we have, we need to be—it needs to be the U.S. and the U.N. strictly serving as a mediating force to try to bring them together and talk, the, talk them down, and get them to work together. But, but as far as getting involved in it, that's crazy. Yeah. The, of the hour that I spent. Being absolutely fascinated by everything, the thing that really got me most was the story of the fish. Isn't <laughs> 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 that something. something? What 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 grabbed me first was that that um, as as a researcher, as a research scientist, and so on, is that your interest in the you were doing an experiment. So you were doing an experiment in moral evolution. Of course, that's my passion, moral evolution and so on. You were applying the integral perspective to an analysis, uh, to to actually an experimental intervention to get a better hold of what the heck is involved in moral evolution. And um, what also... Is in my mind right now is that uh, what makes that particularly meaningful? Aside from the fact that that uh, moral evolution is my my passion, is that I'm I'm writing now, right now. I'm just I'm, I'm deep into writing. What I I'll be ninety in a year, and I've got to get this out fast. But I'm writing. It's <laughs> got to be my last book, the integral Darwin. And and what you're talking about there is right down the line because Darwin, this whole thing about the the moral evolution showing up in the earlier species, it's it's immense in Darwin. I've got a book out there now um, available, e-book anywhere in the world, called Darwin in Love, which is loaded with stories about the sex and the love life. This wide range of 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 animals of all kind, and um, that articulate over and over again. The the, one of them that particularly impressed um, uh, Ken Wilber was that the story, his story of the pelicans. There was this old blind pelican that uh, they found, and he was, and this old blind pelican was being supported, kept alive, fed. By other mm-hmm. pelicans, you know, this is, yeah. this is one of innumerable examples that Darwin uh, collected of the, of the moral evolution. And, 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 of course, what I'm really getting into the integral Darwin is how he pins this down in a transcendent theory. It includes the first half of Origin of Species, but it also gets into what I characterize as the lost second half, Which has been long ignored in the descent of man, and uh, anyway, I'm (laughs) I'm very excited. This is the first time I've been able to get get the stuck on pin number thing to work (laughs) for me.
2: It's great. Yeah. Well, thank you, David, and
0: and for for our listeners, I just want to give a shout out to David. Uh, David Loy is former. Professor at Princeton, UCL, UCLA School of Medicine, uh, and has is the founder of the Darwin Project, which is a, a group of scholars throughout the world who study Darwin from this perspective of um, you know basically rescuing Darwin from scientific materialism and this whole idea of you know the selfish gene and, and survival of the fittest and point out that Darwin uh, talked far more than about about love and you know the beauty and attraction. Than he did about uh, survival of the fittest. And this is really something that's, I think, important. It's really been very important to me. I I know Ken's very interested in in, in close dialogue with David as well, Ken Wilber, that evolution is powered. You know, we we have this idea that it's powered by struggle and conflict and survival of the fittest, and that's clearly true. I mean, we can even see this in these wars that are going on at these, particularly these earlier stages of development. But the other thing that is powering evolution is connection and um, love and community and creativity and these interior dimensions that have been lost by the scientific materialism of the orange altitude of modernity. I guess suppose that's their job is to uh, you know ignore the interiors. It, it is their job actually. But it's the job of integralists to bring it back online. And to see that both of these things, or both of these sides of the street, this you know the struggle, the conflict, and also the love and affiliation, are very much um, the engines of evolution. And we see it in the world, and we see it in our own lives. And to take that seriously has been, I know for me personally, a very very big part of my development over the last couple years. And uh, David, I so appreciate your work. And um, thank you for being on the call. I'm glad you got the pin numbers right, finally. Good to have you. All right. Uh, let's hear from Isabel. Isabel?
3: Hi, yes. Hi. Where
0: are you from, Isabel? Where are you calling from?
3: Well, I'm calling from Forlotterden, Florida.
2: Uh-huh. Well, you're and,
3: welcome. And uh, I was thrilled to hear uh, these two words about love and. Um, w- Ryan Eisler, because when you were talking, I felt like we were trapped in how we were interpreting facts from a very uh, patriarchal perspective, very male, very testosterone-filled. And I was thinking, what if we would talk about love? What if we would approach a crisis like this listening to people, appreciating them, acknowledging them? i was uh, shocked i don't follow politics a lot but a few days ago i heard on npr someone saying well you know these people these these are reacting because how they were treated and i say well this is to me a cry for love someone said look at me look at me and if you don't look at me i will show you my weapons and kill you look at me so what if we change the way to approach it and start approaching them through love it takes a lot of courage because if Obama was gone, say, well, you know, I would talk to these people. Everybody would jump on him. No, you're not a man. <laughs> you're crazy. But yeah. maybe we are trapped there. And no, I, I'm I agree. so happy that you mentioned these words of love. So I'm yeah. curious to see how you integrate it.
0: Well, I think you're right, Isabel. And I think that all of the conversation uh, around Iraq is, you know, not really including that. But if we look, I mentioned Nelson Mandela. What happened in South Africa that really moved people beyond apartheid. I mean, I can't imagine why that country didn't go up in flames. Uh, I've talked to South Africans. They can't either. But this truth and reconciliation, this idea of listening to both sides, of actually having this, these community-wide practices of nonviolent communication where people would talk about how they were hurt and how they felt as both perpetrators and victims. And also in Rwanda, that we would go from the genocide of Rwanda, where in a country of 27 million people, a million people were killed one by another, uh, that there would be a truth and reconciliation uh, movement in that country that has it. um, You know, there's problems in Rwanda, but uh, they are one of the fastest growing countries in the world in terms of GDP. They're peaceful. And they have been able to put this behind them. And we see these movements happening in other parts of the world, but I'm not sure that they work at these super at these earlier stages. Warriors, I don't know if they're really open to that. I think you need to have enough, you know, modern and even postmodern um, vibration in the culture for this to work. But this is this is all new. This is all arising in real time. I'm confused by it, Obama, we're all sort of feeling our way through it. But absolutely, to bring in this other side of the street where it's not just about the struggle, and it's about the affiliation and love and connection and moving forward together. uh, You know, we're, we're working out a technology of how that can, you know, actually be applied. And Godspeed. But thank you, Isabel. Uh, let's hear now from John Slade. John, welcome. It's Laurie. Oh, hi, Laurie. How are you?
4: Hi, good. We're both listening here. Um, we finally figured out halfway through your dialogue how to do it on Skype.
0: Oh, okay, good.
4: <laughs> Sorry to be so, you know, computer illiterate. But um, golly, there's just so many things I'd like to say and ask. But just to technical thing. Um, I hadn't um, heard about that video of the um, uh, Sunni fighters yes. saying come and join us, uh, you know, for yes. Allah. And, uh, you know, don't the Shiites have their video saying come and join us for our Allah? Um, I was really Curious about that, like do a counter video because we have all of two. It's just two different versions of their religion. And what terrified me really about hearing the story, and I'd love to hear your comment, is it's one thing if sectarian violence is tearing a country apart, but when they can call the entire world now through the Internet and say anybody of you who are on the red level, come and be with us. You know, uh,
2: yeah. that's
4: really terrifying. Even if they get all their objectives in the region, well, they can just keep calling people for Allah, because a lot of modern life is really complicated and not as deeply satisfying as the bond of warfare.
0: And uh, yes, it's not. It's it's scary. Isn't that something? I mean, that that delicious deep connection to this. Band of brothers who you live and die for. I mean, how delicious is that compared to the sort of ambiguities and daily rat race of modernity? I mean, it you can see how it is appealing. And this is really one of the downsides of the Internet, of the modern world. I mean, theres it's, it's, it's way out, I think, shined by the upside of the Internet in terms of put, putting us together. But it also allows people... Well, you know, like the Ku-, the Ku Klux Klan has a resurgence because of the Internet, because these Yahoos can find each other now and they can communicate with each other using a technology that they could never have developed at their stage of development. <laughs> but they can use I mean, people, pre-modern people can use modern technology. And so I noticed um, that the jihadi video that I talked about was not available in uh, England and Australia. I don't know. I, I think there's you know ways around that. And the United States, they sort of let it roll, uh, but that's it's really another issue. How do we deal with these call to calls to arms, uh, where you know we can see in real time these people calling each other together to fight modernity, <laughs> using our tools. Uh, it's uh, uh, you know it's a it's a big issue now. I, I do want to put the whole thing in some context. I just saw CNN today said that a thousand people have died in Iraq in the last month. Well, that's a tragedy for all thousand of them and their families, and it's a tragedy, you know, you, you don't want to minimize that in any way, except to say that the only thing worse than a thousand people dying is, as we saw in World War II, 50 or 60 million people dying. And in Vietnam, a million people dying. And what we do notice is that despite the fact that, that, you know, this is war is hell and we can see people being executed and crucified and we can see children. And, you know, the, 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 one of the issues of this is how can we not go in and stop this and, and use some intelligence around, like Obama was saying. You know, you, you you people really have to figure this out for yourselves, and maybe you actually need to fight it out, and that's actually the intelligent move forward. And still, we have to sit and watch it on our televisions. This is new. In Vietnam, when we left Vietnam, when we left Vietnam, uh, the place went into t- carnage. And this is the boat people. This was the. You know all of this. Thich Nhat, read some of Thich Nhat Han about what was going on in Vietnam after we left. Uh, the place went up in flames. But now Vietnam is one of the most successful countries in the world in terms of development. It's friendly to the U.S. It's friendly to the West. It's really just. This is where I I go back to Maleficent, and I think. I actually would like to have the, um, you know, just the sort of simple paradise where we got this all worked out. But, um, you know, it appears that God wants us to go through all of this, this crazy conflict and uh, of development in order to get there. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure I approve, but he didn't ask me. All right. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Laurie. And let's go to Benji. Burlow. Benji.
5: I'm Jeff. Uh, Benji, I'm from Pittsburgh, yeah. um, hey, and I actually have a question about. Yay! <laughs> I actually have a question about the postmodern reinterpretation of fairy tales. Yeah. I understand how adults can reconnect to the stories with a postmodern or integral worldview, but do you think that children can actually grasp these concepts?
2: Yeah, it's a good question,
0: isn't it? You know, I think if we're going to say that development is happening, we're going to say that children are going to get these more complex ideas earlier than ever. That's not to say that it's not appropriate as a parent and as a culture to have you know be conscious of a stage of development where kids go through where they actually are red. They they want to show their power. They want to be they want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be part of things. They you know uh, that's red. They want to fight actually. They want to, you know, be in conflict. They want to learn what they're made of. They want to, you know, contend with each other. And we want to let that happen. sports is the great sort of civilized way of helping children through red. But also we want to give them some time in amber or blue, uh, where they get to sit with right and wrong and good and bad. And they want to be good little girls and good little boys. And they don't want it to be too complex. You know, it's not appropriate for kids to, you know, who haven't gotten, you know, the basic polarity of good and evil to then see that that polarity can be integrated within the same person and so forth. So I get that those stages need to be, you know, discerned and we need to be skillful with them with children. But I also think that we can do it faster and we are doing it faster. Now, these, you know, Wicked and Malevolent, they're not necessarily made for kids, although Malevolent, I guess you could argue, was. Maleficent, I'm sorry. (laughs) And certainly Frozen, uh, the Disney cartoon, that's made for kids. And any parent I know is like, you know, (laughs) so sick of hearing those songs from Frozen that they can't stand it. But nine, ten-year-old kids are getting that you can be both in the same person. And that's not what we were getting when we were 9 and 10 and 11. So uh, I think, you know, both are true. These stages have to be honored, and we move through them faster and faster. And that's one of the things we know about development in general, is that people who are born into a modern culture tend to be pulled up to modernity themselves. Not all. Some stay in traditionalism and some go beyond. But, and we don't know why that happens. But the center of gravity of gravity of the culture tends to pull us up to its you know basic level uh, by the time we're 18 or so. So if you're born in America, you're going to be roughly modern by the time you're 18. If you're born in Afghanistan, uh, you're not. You're going to be roughly maybe red or early amber, depending on the culture uh, or the tribe or the part of the country that you're in. And that's... Uh, you know, as we know seventy uh, percent of the people of the world are still pre modern in terms of their psyche, so all of that's online, but certainly a good point, Benji. thank you. so I think one last uh call, and we'll hang it up for the night and that is uh Adam singer Adam would you like to share Hi Jeff. hey Adam
5: hey, where are you from um well, I'm from Boulder right now I'm in Austin.
0: Okay, cool. What do you have to share?
5: Um, First of all, I just wanted to say it was so um, validating to hear um, another adult who's not in the animation industry acknowledge um, some level of depth in these movies that are coming out because I work on these. I'm an animator, and uh, I see these things all the time, and and most people just brush it off as kid stuff, so it was really nice for me to hear that.
2: (laughs) Right on,
5: but mainly it was kind of what you were just talking about right at the very end when you were. I just wanted to share a little, uh, a little thought that kind of popped in my head again when you were talking about the band of brothers and and that bond that really uh, nothing else seems to compare to when these vets get back. Um, it reminded me of a. Um, A very young vet from Afghanistan. He was in his late 20s that I met um, a few months ago. And he was um, editing together a documentary and he had shot a bunch of footage while he was over there. And it was, um, I watched a rough cut of it and he, it was, you know, a mix of footage from him there and then some footage when he got back and he had a very difficult adjustment coming back and. Um, you know, a friend of his who came back as well, killed himself. And it was, it was um, a really, you know, heart wrenching story about Mm -hmm. these young vets coming back. And at the, at the end, he had shot some footage of himself, just um, kind of ranting at the camera about what was so upsetting to him about being back. And the very last thing he said that really stuck with me because it, it actually really confused me. What you said. Everybody thinks war is about hate. Everybody thinks war is about hate, and it's not. War is about love. Mm-hmm. And and when I said that, I I wrote him and I asked him to clarify that because I was totally baffled as like a pacifist, you know, guy. What What does he mean? War is about love. That That's the most. Um, that's the most hard to wrap my head around thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And when you were talking about that, it just clicked in my head. Maybe that's what he meant, you know. Yeah. So I just wanted to share
2: that. Yeah. No,
0: it's really something, isn't it? One of the things we see in, in our culture now is it's really very much up in America, and I'm assuming in other Western countries as well, is how we deal with these veterans who come back. And there's really so much more uh, attention paid to mental health It's it's. It's it's certainly not even perfect. Apparently, from the VA scandal, it's not even terribly well done. But the fact that it happens at all is remarkable. When I think of my uncles who came back from World War II, you know, with uh, shrapnel and their arm. one My one uncle had his arm basically blown off. And, you know, they just didn't talk about it. And they got on with their life. And th- there's actually something I think that we can notice about development there, too, is that uh, at earlier stages of development, the, the the trauma of war really doesn't arise or stick in the same way that it does for people who are modern and, and you know, postmodern. You get somebody who's modern or postmodern, uh, who's forced to go into or, you know, maybe chooses, uh, much to his regret generally, to go into a red war uh, situation, they're traumatized. It's almost like the complexity of their minds allows a new level of trauma to really arise and be seen. And uh, I think of the one of my favorite books of all time, All Quiet in the Western Front, which is basically about a young German who is progressive and complex in all of his thinking, you know, modern, postmodern, maybe plus – and his story of the horrors of war, uh, and that book itself uh, was so instrumental in waking people up to this
2: but I actually think in earlier cultures there wasn 't the problem in the same way, and in earlier stages of development uh, that we see in um, you know among these jihadis and so forth it 's not quite the same, so you know uh, a theory. Interesting, and God bless us all, huh, folks? Well, thank you. Uh, I see it's 825 here in Colorado, so I've been, uh, we've been a little over time, but so be it. It's been a great call. It's been good to be back with you. I appreciate you tuning in and appreciate your comments. And let's, you know, continue to keep an eye on, keep our minds and our hearts tuned into this ever-evolving catastrophe (laughs) called uh, human life. And uh, with that, uh, I'll bid everybody a good night. And uh, until next week, keep it integral, folks. All right, Jeff Salzman signing off.